Psalm 48. We are, it, it, seem, it, it seems like it's been a theme here lately. Uh, guest preachers have come in and preached on things like perilous times and, and uh, things like that. And we are, it is true, we are living in perilous times. And the churches of God are going through perilous times. There's attacks inside, there's attacks from the outside, from government officials, from, from, uh, from uh, wolves and things like that. Paul warned us that wolves, grievous wolves, he called them, would come in and, and, uh, and uh, uh, would not spare the flock and they would come in and tear things up. And we're just going through some tough times in this day. And it's easy to look at our surroundings and be, be, be overwhelmed and overcome with defeat. You know, Jesus did say, occupy till I come, didn't he? He did say, you know, that we, there was something to be done. We have a work to do. And uh, he has not returned yet. He is fully aware of where we are living tonight. And we, he is aware of what, what we are going through tonight. And I will tell you, as bad as it is, as challenging as it is in our own nation, listen, friend, we're not being burned at the stake yet. We're not being filleted. We're not being quartered. We're not being dropped in hot oil. We're not being hunted down and living in caves and rocks and things like that. That actually happened to our Baptist forefathers before us. And uh, so thank the Lord we're not there uh, yet, and hopefully we won't be there. But I'm telling you tonight, it's easy to look around and get pretty discouraged at the scene. It's easy to get discouraged when you just don't see people walking the aisle like they used to and, and see all of the troubles that go on. So I want to encourage you tonight, out of the 48th Psalm, and I want to look at this and uh, hopefully we can uh, leave here a little happier than when we came in. Look at verse 1, would you please? How many can sing verses 1 and 2? How many of you know that? Let's sing it. You ready? How, do you, how many know that song? You ready? We're going to sing this. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountains of His holiness. Beautiful for situations, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north in the city of the great king. Good job. How many didn't know that? Really? Wonderful. That's a great song. Easy to remember. Look at verse two, three. God is known in her palaces for a refuge. For lo, the kings were assembled. They passed by together. They saw it, and so they marveled. They were troubled and hasted away. Fear took hold upon them there in pain, as of a woman in travail. Thou breakest the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God. God will establish it forever. Selah. That means pause. Chew on this. Meditate upon it. Verse 9. We have thought of thy loving kindness, O God, in the midst of thy temple. According to thy name, O God, so is thy praise under the ends of the earth. Thy right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of thy judgments. Walk about Zion and go round about her. Tell the towers thereof. Mark ye well her bulwarks. Consider her palaces that you may tell it to the generations following. For this God is our God forever and ever. And he will be our guide even Unto death. Father, would you bless your word tonight? Would you encourage us tonight in Jesus' name? Amen. And I want you to notice here tonight in the 48th Psalm, we see 
a great God. And can I tell you tonight, our God is a great God. Amen? Are we all right with that? That's an easy one to agree with. You might not get some theological deep things and sit there like kind of like, huh? but that one's pretty easy. God is great. He is. Look at this verses 1 and 2. He's worthy of praise. Notice verse 3 through 7. Because God is great, He is to be feared. Verses, verse 8. Because God is great, He is to be trusted. God is great because of His love. In verse 9, God is because God is great, He is to be praised. You see this in verses 10 and 11. Verse 12 through 13, we see that because God is great, He is to be glorified. And I want you to notice here how the psalmist concludes this psalm in verse 11. For this God is our God forever and ever. Do you realize this? Look what he's saying here. He is our God. Do you know Him tonight? Is He your God tonight? You know what? He's not the God of Islam. He is not the God of Buddhism. He is not the God of Hinduism. He is not the God of Mormonism. He is the God of Abraham and Jacob and Isaac, is He not? Yeah. Amen? Come on, are you awake? I don't think God's great to you. (laughs) I'm wondering. My goodness. I'm warning you. I'm going to go find a black church to preach in. You keep this up. He's great, right? Amen. Amen. There we go. Thank you. He's great. How do we know He's great? His works His works reveal His greatness. I think of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. God is great because of His works. Nobody else has even claimed to be creator of everything that we see. God is great in His creation. Look at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed which is upon the face of the earth, and every tree, and that which is the fruit of a tree of yielding seed, to you it shall be for meat. And he goes on from there, and we see the creation of God, and the crown jewel of God's creation, being you and I, right? He is creator, is He not? And He made you and He made me. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them, that includes the angels, that includes the stars, the moon, it includes Satan, it includes everybody. God created all of it. And look at it, on the seventh day, God ended His work which He made, and He rested on the seventh day from all of His work which He had made. Not because He was tired, Not because he was wore out, not because it was a hard task, but because he was finished with what he was going to do, right? He was done. Do you know what tonight? I'm telling you tonight, this creator God, God, he's our God, is he not? Now this is our God. 
The Creator God is our God. Not only that, God is great in creation. Watch this, in His works of creation. God is great in His works of deliverance. Hezekiah was king for 14 years at this one place when Sennacherib came up and decided he was going to give him a hard time and try to take over Judah. You can go over to to Isaiah chapter 36 and you can find this there. Hezekiah, Hezekiah was king and here comes Sennacherib and he, some of his men come up and they tell the people there in the southern parts of Judah, said, go tell your king, go tell Hezekiah that we're coming and we're going to take all of this over. Look at verses 4 through 8 of chapter 36. Chapter 36. Isaiah 36, look at verse 4. And Rabshakeh said unto them, Say ye now to Hezekiah, saith the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this wherein thou trustest? I say, sayest thou, but they are but vain words, I have counsel and strength for war. Now on whom uh, dost thou trust that thou rebellest against me? Lo, thou trustest in the staff of this broken reed on Egypt, whereof if a man lean, he will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all that trust him. But if thou say unto me, We trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah have taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, Ye shall worship before this altar? Stop right there. Did you notice this? Did you realize Sennacherib did not have a right understanding of what, uh, of what, uh, of, of, uh, godliness here? And he thought the high places and the altars were actually, uh, of the God of Israel. Do you see this? He said, if they're saying to me, we trust the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places, whose altars Hezekiah hath taken away? The, 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 the pagans of the world really believed that the idolatry in Israel was actually the correct representation of the God of Israel. And it wasn't. Can I tell you, the world looks at the Christian world today and they think, they think what we, what is pagan among believers is, is really godly. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get on some stuff tonight. Like Easter bunnies and Santa Clauses and things like that. And people say, oh, we don't do that. You go, well, I thought you were a Christian. Uh, see how they have wrong ideas of what? Yeah, whose problem was that? That was Israel's problem. Hezekiah was actually right. So here's Sennacherib saying, uh, don't, don't say you're, we're going to trust in God because you went and took away all his high places and all of those things. Look at verse 8. Now therefore give pledges, I pray thee to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give thee 2,000 horses if thou be able on thy part to set riders upon them. And Sennacherib says, if you just bow down to me, I'll, I'll take care of you and I'll build you up and I'll help you. Look at verse 14 of the same chapter 36. Thus saith the king, let not Hezekiah deceive you. He's talking to the people now. For he shall not be able to deliver you. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, uh, saying the Lord will surely deliver us. This city shall not be delivered into the hand uh, of of the king of, I- of Assyria. He said, don't let him tell you that. Don't let him try to tell you that. Look at verse 16. Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus saith the king of Assyria, make an agreement with me by a present, and come out to me, eat ye every one of his vine, and every one of his fig tree, and drink ye every one of the waters of his own cistern, until I come and take you away into a land like your own land, a land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyard. Beware, lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying the Lord will deliver us. Hath any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? 
Where are the gods of Hamath and Arphad? Where are the gods of Seraphim? And have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who are they among the gods of the, these lands that I that have delivered their land out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? He had a, he had a valid argument, didn't he? He'd just been running over the countryside. He'd been taken all over all of these nations. And to him, the God of Israel was no different than the pagan, non-existent gods of these other nations. And so Sennacherib goes, go ahead and try it. It isn't going to work, right? So in Isaiah chapter 37, Eliakim and Eshibna and Joah came and he told Hezekiah about it. And Hezekiah in verse 1, he rinsed his clothes In chapter 37, he covers himself in ashes. He heads to the house of God and he sends the three guys here. He sends them over to Isaiah to tell the prophet of what's going on. And if you look at Isaiah 37 and look at verse 3, And they said unto him, Thus saith Hezekiah, they're talking to to Isaiah now, This day is a day of trouble and of rebuke and of blasphemy, for the children are come to the birth, and there is not strength to bring forth. It may be the Lord thy God will hear the words of Rabshakeh, whom the king of Assyria, his master, hath sent to reproach the living God, and will reprove the words which the Lord thy God hath heard, whereof lift up thy prayer for the remnant that is left. And then so the the servants, they came to Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, or, or to Isaiah. And so here's what Isaiah says. Verse 6, And Isaiah said unto them, Thus shall you say to your master, Thus saith the Lord, Be not afraid of the words that thou hast heard, wherewith the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will send a blast upon him, and he shall hear a rumor, and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. So Rabshakeh goes home, they go back, and they have, it takes a little time here uh, between the two. And finally, Hezekiah gets another letter from, from Sennacherib. And, and he tells him, essentially, you're dead, man. I'm ta- coming into your country. There's nothing you can do about it. And so Hezekiah takes this letter and he goes up to the house of God again. And he spreads it out before God. And look what he says here in verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went into the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed unto the Lord, saying, O Lord God of hosts, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, that dwelleth between the cherubim, and thou art the God, even thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. Thou hast made heaven and earth. Incline thine ear, O Lord, and hear. Open thine eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which hath sent to reproach the living God. And he goes on and he prays unto unto God and he puts out his petition before him because they need to be delivered at this time. And look at verse 33, would you please? Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shields, nor cast a bank against it. By the way which that he came, by the same shall he return, and shall not come into the city, saith the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for mine own sake, and for my servant David's sake. Look at verse 36. Then the angel of the Lord went forth, and smote in the camp of the Assyrians an hundred and fourscore and five thousand. You see what God did? He sent one angel. Oh yeah, Sennacherib was so tough, wasn't he? He was pretty bad. He said, I just, I just mowed through all of the nations all around me and there's, there's nothing that you can do against me. And God says, okay, I'll just have one of my angels come. And just one of them, what did he do? Wiped out 185,000 of them in one night. 
Yeah. <laughs> you like that? Yeah. You know what? This God is our God. Yeah. Forever and ever and ever and ever. He's great in creation. He's great in deliverance. He is great in the, uh, the kingdoms of this world. We're going to see the kingdoms of the world. Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. Israel has been taken into captivity because of their sin. They're going to spend 70 years living in Babylon. A portion of Israel is. And taken into captivity. Included into this captivity. You know this. Was the man by the name of Daniel. Well, while Daniel was there, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And he calls his magicians in, if you remember this. And they, none of them can tell him what the dream is. Um, and so as time goes on, they finally find Daniel. Daniel comes in to Nebuchadnezzar and he tells him what his dream is. And uh, the, the, the dream was of this great and mighty tree, a large tree that was, uh, that was eventually cut down. And the stump was left and the stump was left there. But Nebuchadnezzar did not know what it meant. It troubled him. He knew there was something about that dream, but he had no way to know what it was. And this is what Daniel told him. Nebuchadnezzar, that tree is your kingdom. It is a great kingdom. It's a mighty kingdom, but it's going to be cut down. The stump's going to remain. It's going to come back eventually. But for a period of what the Bible calls seven times, whether it's seven years, seven months, seven weeks, it just says seven times you will be driven from, uh, driven uh, from, from your kingdom and you're going to live like a madman with the beasts. And you're going to do that for a period of seven times. And so Daniel warns Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. I'm going to read. You can go there if you want. Chapter 4. Listen to verse 27. Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness, and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. And so Daniel is warning now, Nebuchadnezzar, repent. This dream is from God. God has had mercy on you. He's warning you. Your kingdom is going to be cut down. You are going to be cut down. Repent. Repent, repent. And we see here about 12 months later. 12 months later, Nebuchadnezzar is walking around in his palace. Can I tell you, God is a God of mercy. And God gives us space to repent. But don't you ever, please don't ever confuse God's silence with his approval. There are things that God has told you and you know they're wrong. You know you need to change. You know you need to do. You know that. And, and you, it just seems like, well, maybe it isn't as bad. Maybe, maybe those old timers just railed about it too much. Maybe they throffed at the mouth about it too much. Maybe it wasn't that big of a deal. Careful. You want to see the product of where we're living today? We're living in the product of it, aren't we? Yeah. God's maybe giving you space to repent and he's silent right now. He was silent with Nebuchadnezzar for a, for a year, 12 months. Look at verse 28 of chapter 4 if you're there. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 29, at the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by my might I'm sorry, by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty. Wrong, buddy. Bad thing to say. 
Look at verse 31. While the word was in the king's mouth. Have you ever said something and before it got out of your mouth, you thought, whoa, that was pride. You ever had a thought like, well, yeah, I, I built that. And then something to your spirit of God and you said, oh boy, really? Where'd your breath come from? Where'd your brain come from? Where'd your life come from? Yeah. While it was yet in his mouth. While as yet word is, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee, thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. And that tree came crashing down that day. Yeah. Look what it says here. And they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee, until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it whomsoever he Will can I remind you of Proverbs twenty one, where the Bible says the king of the I'm sorry the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water and he moveth it whithersoever he will. God is in control. God is in is on the throne. The the kingdoms of the world they have their thrones, they have their, their dominions. But I'm telling you tonight, God is above every last one of them, and He's in control of all of them. He knows exactly what's going on. Yeah, Neb, no, he had Neb, Neb had a great kingdom, but God was greater. Yeah, look what happens in verse twenty-seven. I love this. I'm sorry, verse thirty-four. And at the end of the days, now this this is this is Nebuchadnezzar's uh, testimony. He's writing this. He has written this out. Look at this. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes unto heaven. I love this. And mine understanding returned unto me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored Him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion. You catch that? This guy who thought he was the greatest there was, and he came to an understanding that God's dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And He doeth according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say unto Him, What doest thou? Look at verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, what? I praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. Not King Nebuchadnezzar, the King of heaven. All whose works are truth, his ways, judgment, and those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. Listen, this God is our God. Yeah. Don't be afraid of the government. Don't be afraid of the kingdoms of this world. Don't be afraid of what they come against, how they come against us. Don't be afraid what they threaten to do unto us. God in heaven is in control, is He not? Amen. This is our God. This is our God. He's great in creation. He's great in deliverance. He is, he is great in the kingdoms of the world. But I'm telling you lastly tonight, He's great in redemption. Redemption. From the moment that Adam and Eve sinned, God already had a plan. We see Revelations 13, 8, and it says, All that dwell on the earth shall worship Him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Before God created it all, before God made it all, it was already determined that man, He knew 
Listen, uh, 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 God's foreknowledge doesn't mean determination. Just because He knows doesn't mean He causes. But He knew man was going to sin. Well, why, why, if He knew Adam was going to sin, why did He create him in the first place? Well, God has, he has the right to create, absolutely. He can create whatever He wants to. But because He wanted a, His creation to have a reciprocal relationship with Him, we had to have a free will. In order to love, the, op- the object of your love has to have the opportunity to say no. And the opposite of that, you know what it is, I've told you before. The opposite of love is lust. And the object of one's lust has no ob- object, ability to say no. You are, they are forced upon. They are made. They are made to do this. And I've said this before, which proves Calvinism. It makes God this great cosmic luster. Who has, you have no, no will of your own to, to say yes or no. It's just a, a, a wicked doctrine. But God created us with a free will. So we could love Him. So we could love Him in return. So we could be reciprocal. But because He knew what was going to happen, God said, I'm going to, we're going to fix this. And Jesus said, I'll go. The Father said, I'm going to sin. Jesus said, I'll go. Holy Spirit said, I'll draw Him to you. In Genesis 3.15, the Bible says, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head. Thou shalt bruise his heel. And that day that Adam and Eve sinned, God killed an animal, a lamb, I suppose, to clothe Adam and Eve. Oh, I'll say it. God, God dressed them. <laughs> yeah. God dressed them. And He showed them how they were to offer a blood sacrifice to atone for their sins. And you see, for 4,000 years, the blood of a lamb had to be sacrificed as atonement for a sin. God made it plain that it was blood. It was blood that atoned for sin. God didn't, he received Abel's sacrifice. He, he had favor unto it, but he rejected Cain's when he brought the fruit of the ground. And I, I've said this before, it's because you can't get blood out of a turnip. That's why he didn't want Cain's sacrifice. He had the option, he had the opportunity to go back and get, get the right sacrifice and he didn't want to. But God has made it plain that it is a shedding of blood. Leviticus 17.11 The Bible says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it, uh, I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh atonement for the soul. And in Hebrews 9.22, the Bible says, Whereby almost all things are by, are by the law purged, uh, purged with blood, and without shedding the blood is no remission. See, there was a problem though. Animal sacrifices were only temporary. They couldn't be for they, they were never they were never intended to be forever. In Hebrews 10:4, the Bible says, For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats that they should take away sin. It's not possible. So you know what God did? God put on human flesh. He was born of a virgin, no earthly father. He was born of a virgin. He was made in the likeness of human flesh. He had, he had a human body, but dwelling in that earth suit was the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ. He was a hundred percent human. He was a hundred percent divine. And, uh, 
He proved it by his, he proved his deity uh, by his miracles. He proved his deity by signs and wonders. He proved his deity by a sinless life. He proved his deity by obedience to his father. He was being baptized. The Bible says after he was baptized, the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God led him up out of the water into the wilderness to be tempted of Satan. Listen. I, I, you ever wonder why, why the Holy Spirit had to had to lead Jesus? I was like, "What? Any God? <laughs> why would Jesus need the Holy Spirit?" Well, because the role of the Father isn't the role of the Son, and the role of the Son isn't the role of the Holy Spirit. No, their jobs don't they don't combine. They have their own job, and the in in the job of the Holy Spirit, he ha, he, ha, he his role was being played on earth uh, as as Jesus was as well. Absolutely, they're, they're both at the same time there. They're both doing their job. And so the Holy, watch this, the Holy Spirit of God led Jesus, led him out of, into the wilderness to be tempted. It was God's idea for Jesus to be tempted. Why? Well, some believe that when Satan took Jesus to be tempted, it was, it was to see if, it was to see if he could get him to sin. Oh, I know what people have said. Well, well, Jesus could have sinned. <laughs> well, there's a problem with that. I understand the logic in that because people will say, well, Adam, Adam and Eve was created perfect and they sinned. So Jesus has human flesh. He could have sinned. That's a logical uh, place to go. I understand that. But it's wrong because what was dwelling in the, in that, that earth suit of Jesus Christ was God himself. And it was not in Adam. No, Jesus could not have sinned. It was not possible. It's like saying God can sin. No, we're by two immutable things where it is impossible for God to lie. God can't sin. God can't sin. If it's impossible for Him to to lie, it's impossible for Him to sin. There's no sin in God. Who was dwelling in that fleshly body? Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead. So why did Satan take him out to be tempted? Why did the Holy Spirit of God lead Jesus out to the wilderness to be tempted? To prove that he was God. To, to validate it, to verify it, to prove that he was who he said he was. Yeah. Satan wasn't going to get him to sin. It wasn't going to happen. <laughs> Do you realize there's a 30-day period, if I'm not mistaken, uh, I may have the days wrong, but there was a period of time where that where that Passover lamb was brought in, and he was brought in for inspection. And they would look through the the hair, and they'd look through the wool, and they'd try to find any type of a blemish in him before he was offered up. There was a time period of inspection, and I would submit to you tonight that the that the that the, the, the temptation in the wilderness was an inspection period to prove that this was the spotless. Lamb of God. And at the right time, Jesus was brought up to be crucified. Oh, he was in complete control, friend. Remember when Pilate said, Don't you know I have the power to crucify thee? And Jesus said, You have no power at all against me. I lay my life down and I can take it up again. Total control. He was in complete obedience. He says, Not my will but thine be done. Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He was in complete obedience. He was in complete determination. He said, do you not know? I could call 12 legions of angels and I would be gone in a second. But he stayed. He stayed there. Why? Because he came to die. He came to die. Over in Mark 15, 
I'll read verse 35 through 37 for you. And some of them that stood by when they heard it said, Behold, he calleth Elias. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink, saying, Let alone, let us see whether Elias will come to take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. See, when sin needed paid for, Muhammad never offered. When sin needed paid for, Buddha never offered. When sin needed paid for, the 300 million gods of Hinduism never once showed up and offered. Why? Because they don't exist. They're dead. They're gone. <laughs> they couldn't pay. When sin, listen, when sin needed paid for, God put on human flesh and He gave His own life as the lamb slain. Yeah. No, this God is our God. This is our God tonight, isn't it? Yeah. But he wasn't finished. He wasn't finished at Calvary. No, we're not Catholics. We don't stop there. We go right on to the resurrection, don't we? They laid him in a borrowed tomb and Satan thought he had won. Absolutely he did and something was going on in there. Something he could not control. I love that song we sing at the resurrection time. Death could not keep his prey. Jesus, my Savior, he tore the bars away. Jesus, my Lord, up. From the grave, He arose with a mighty triumph for His foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain, and He lives forever with His saints to reign. He arose, He arose, He arose. Hallelujah. Christ arose. The debt has been paid. Death has been defeated. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. This God, this God is our God forever and ever and He will be our guide even unto death. I love that 48th Psalm. Listen, please. Nobody loves you more than God. Think about that. Nobody loves you more than God. Nobody loves you more than the Father who sent Jesus. Nobody loves you more than Jesus who went to Calvary. Nobody loves you more than the Holy Spirit of God who pursued you to bring you to the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I tell you tonight, whatever you're facing, whatever you're worried about, whatever you're concerned about, whatever is, is oppressing you tonight, can I tell you, this God is our God and He will be our guide even unto death. This is Him. No, it's our God. It's our God. Do you know Him? Facing any burdens tonight? Any fears tonight? You have some enemies? Maybe you got some enemies tonight. Do you have any enemies? Do you need deliverance? Been seeking deliverance in your life? Can I tell you tonight? He is able. God is able. And He is our God too. Can I tell you tonight? Listen to me. Would you go to Him? Would you just go to him? He can handle it. He can handle it. This God is our God forever and ever. And he will be our guide even unto death. Amen. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for the encouragement. We are living in some strange times. 
They're not strange to you. We're living in some times that we don't understand, but you completely understand. We're living in some times when, with, with opposition and, and, uh, and, and just, uh, it just seems like a, at every corner there's opposition. But you're fully aware of it. We're living in a time where it seems like, uh, you know, just wickedness is abounding. And it's going to. But at the end of it all, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna make it all right. We know the Lord Jesus is going to rule from His throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years. We understand that. So Father, we just look to You tonight. We, I just want to thank You. Personally, I want to thank You for the pursuing of the Holy Spirit, for the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and for Your love that hatched the whole plan. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. We want to thank you tonight, Father, that you are our God forever and ever. Amen. Why don't we stand tonight?